Hey everybody, this is Klaatu, and you're listening to episode 334 of the GNU World Order. 334. What does that mean again? Well, it means that I've had approximately 334 episodes. The reason I'm mentioning this, in case you have no idea why I would mention such an obvious thing, is because previously we had seasons. We don't have seasons now, I just do an episode every week. It started to be silly to have an arbitrary season name assigned to that. In the past, I did 20 episodes a year, which was an arbitrary number that I just found that, generally speaking, I could handle. Sometimes I could handle it, sometimes I couldn't, and that's why it's 334 episodes and not, I don't know, 52 times 14 plus 2. So that's the explanation. I won't give it every time, I just want to kind of get everybody caught up, and that's why we're using numbers right now. 334 simplifies everything for everyone. In this episode, we're going to get back into reviewing all of the packages on Slackware Linux. Now, it's Slackware Linux because that's what I have installed on my workstation. This probably applies to you regardless of what Linux system you're running. Now, you might not have every package that we review or that we go over installed right now. A lot of distros try to uh, conserve on the amount of data that they require you to download, so they don't install a lot of these things by default, but it's almost certainly in your distro's repository, and it, it may well be, it might surprise you how much of this is installed on your computer right now, even if you've never used it, because uh, frankly, that's how Linux is. It's got so many little applications to do little tasks that are used by other processes that sometimes we never realize they're there because we don't we don't ever think to use them directly. But it can be interesting to hear about each application, I hope, because that's what we're doing. So we did last year, it's what we're gonna do this year. Now last year we managed to get through the whole package set A. I think it's probably labeled that because it had to come first in the series. So this year we're going to start out with AP and we'll go through it for as long as we need to and then switch over to whatever's next. The AP package set, from what I have understood, means the it stands for applications. AP applications. For the for the correct and historical answer, I'm going to look at Slackware Essentials or Slackware Linux Essentials. It's the official guide to Slackware Linux, updated second edition by Chris Lumens, David Cantrell, Logan Johnson, and Alan Hicks. So this was released the, the second edition was released it looks like may 2005 this thing goes back all the way to 1998 and it used to be sold on the slackware store before the slackware store kind of started essentially embezzling from what i can tell from slackware and they no longer are a supported platform as as far as i know but in this fine book, which I think you can get the sources for this online, I mean, I know you can, I, I, I think it's actually being updated online, but historically, anyway, as of 2005, the package sets, the, the software series, were Series A, the base system, contains enough software to get up and running and have a text editor and basic communication program. AP, which is the software series we're about to start on now, says it's various applications that do not require the X window system. There you go. That's the difference between A and AP. The applications that do require X, that do require a graphical interface or a graphic server, we will experience in the XAP section. So enough about that. Let's get started with the first one listed, which is A2PS. That is A and then the number 2, PS. This is a printing or a postscript utility. I'm going to just really quick like look at 
slash var slash log slash packages a2ps just to see what got installed. Every application that you install or every every package you install on Slackware provides you a log with every single file put onto your system in that from 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 installing that package. And it puts that in slash var slash log slash packages slash and then the app the, the, the package name. So this says that it's GNU A2PS is an any to postscript filter. There you go. It processes plain text files, but also pretty prints quite a few popular programming languages. Okay, so it's got a couple of different binaries that it installed. It looks like it installed A2PS, uh, something called card, something called compose glyphs, EPS fit, extract res, fixed LS RPS. Yeah, so there's a bunch of different ones. And I guess it's part of our charter to go through every single one of these. So let's get started. So A2PS is the the command, and obviously the command for which the package is named, although obviously not the only command contained in it. But A2PS is the the one that we're thinking of when we say, oh, A2PS, the package. We're thinking of that command. And this command is, let's put it this way, have you ever had a, a, a nice, simple text file, and you needed to get that text file to someone who wouldn't know what to do with a text file? So you think, well... I'll send them a PDF, because that's what everybody knows. They can open up a PDF no matter what. So, I mean, it seems silly, but but believe me, I know that this has happened. Uh, or maybe you just need the text file in a PDF format because of some other reason. Maybe your, maybe your, um, maybe your resume is in, is in text format, but you know that the, the HR person won't open a text file. They'll only open a PDF file. Or maybe the printer that you're dealing with doesn't seem to want to process a text file, and so you know that if you feed it a PDF off of a USB thumb drive, it'll print that, or whatever the, the reason. I'm not saying that this is necessarily something that makes sense, I'm just saying that it happens. You need to convert that text file into a PDF. The answer that everyone immediately has in their head is, okay, well, I'll just open the text file in in some application and save as, or export to, or print as a PDF, whatever. There are lots of easy ways to get a, a text file to a PDF. Well, all of that is perfectly acceptable, but there's also the A2PS command, which will convert your text file quite happily to PostScript. PostScript is the the language of printers. It is the way that printers know how to draw the shapes on the page that you are requesting gets printed. PDFs are based on PostScript. They are the digitized version of PostScript. That's why they're so good for pre-press. They, they, they will show you the PostScript calculations in a digital form, just like the printer would show you the, po the, the results of the PostScript calculations on, on paper and in, in ink. So, A2PS. If I do A2PS and then look for some kind of text file, here's a get.c file. I think this is the IPC sample program that we did for um, the interprocess communication episode back in season 13, and that was back when we used to do seasons. Remember those days? Um, so we'll do a2ps git.c-output, and we'll call it uh, get.ps for postscript. And then very quickly, it says that it's processed that sheet and saved, in saved it into the file get.ps. And then if I open up the get.ps with, let's say, um, Ocular, which is the PDF reader on KDE, Ocular space get.ps, that opens up Ocular, and it looks like uh, the, the text file has very nicely and 
neatly been formatted in PostScript, and uh, it's being rendered for me by Ocular because Ocular knows how to how to decode PostScript. That's that's A2PS. It takes your ostensibly ugly text file and makes sure that it kind of makes sense for modern printers. Now, the the nice thing about this is that once you get something into PostScript, you can then convert that PostScript file into PDF pretty easily. There's there's actually a, a completely different command for that provided by the GhostScript package, which is the free and open source version of PostScript. It's called PS2PDF, actually. So you probably have that installed on your system as well, but we won't talk about that yet because that, that will cover in the ghost script um, section when we when we hit that. But that's the basic use of A2PS, that's the bare minimum. There are several options you can add to this mix to control how things are output. For instance, dash dash landscape prints in landscape mode, dash dash portrait on the other hand prints in portrait mode, dash dash columns and then some number controls how many columns you'll get per sheet, dash dash rows controls how many rows per sheet, and so on. The really obvious uh, controls, I guess, would be, first of all, I guess, the header. Um, by default, the PostScript file that you generate has a, a I think it's a quite nice uh, a header, but on the left side, it's got the creation, either the C time or the M time, I forget which, and then it's got the title, and then I think maybe how many pages are being printed or something like that. There's there's some some information at the header. So you could just do dash dash no dash header for no page headers at all. Or you can do dash dash header equals and then some text to set your page header yourself. It also prints borders around each page of of text that you that you generate postscript for. You can turn that off with dash dash borders equals no or off or zero, any any of those three to indicate no. Or if you've turned it off and and I don't know want to explicitly turn it on or something, I, I'm not really sure why you would need that. Maybe there's a config file that I don't know about. But you can do uh, dash dash borders equals yes or borders equals on or borders equals one, and that'll make sure that it, the the borders are printed. So I think you get the idea from from that. There's other options in the man page. I'm not going to go over every one of, of of them. Obviously, that would take forever. So we'll do uh we'll we'll talk about the next one in in the package, which is called card. Card prints a reference card, as as it were, uh, of program options. So the syntax is pretty simple. It's card and then some options of your choosing, and then the program that you want a reference card of. It has the same dash dash output option, so we'll use that as the option, uh, the, the relevant option. And so we'll do uh, card dash dash output equals, I'll just do um, sample.ps, and then the command that we'll, we'll get the options for is, um, let's do ffmpeg just to be clever. So I'm just typing in ffmpeg, and then I hit return. And it says three pages on two sheets saved into the file sample.ps. Uh, so I'll do ocular sample.ps. Again, ocular is just the PDF reader of my on, on my system. And that renders uh, indeed a three page with uh, what we call a two up. So there's two pages, you know, two two uh, buffers or two frames on on one page. And it's uh, of the FFmpeg. It's essentially the the output of FFmpeg dash dash help is is really what this is providing me. 
it does also reveal a couple of weaknesses in this in these associated programs, which is very long lines. It doesn't always know what to do with very long lines. So I'm going to close out of Ocular so I can get my prompt back, and then uh, we can, it says in the card man page, that you can pass A2PS options after a double dash. So for instance, if I go back to man A2PS, and I look for... Um, the string long, because there we go. There's a dash dash truncate dash lines, which cuts long lines. And I'm not 100% sure if, yeah, I'm not seeing sort of a control to wrap a long line. So what we'll do is we're going to go back up to card dash dash output equals sample.ps. And then ffmpeg is the command. But it says that after a double dash, I can provide A2PS options. So I'm going to do dash dash and then space dash dash truncate dash lines and see if that works. Oh, it looks like truncate lines is a Boolean. It's either yes or no or on or off or one or zero. So I'll do dash dash truncate dash lines equals yes. And now it says that there are two pages on one sheet, ocular sample.ps and I look at it, and it's better. It's still not actually perfect. It does look like it, it truncated some stuff, but it, it printed over the second column nevertheless. So that's kind of interesting that this isn't. This doesn't seem to be working for me on FFmpeg, uh, which honestly I didn't realize. This wasn't a setup. This was um, I was just wondering how long FFmpeg would be, and, and it's interesting that I'm running into problems with Trunk, uh, non-truncated lines. The only other idea that I have off the top of my head is dash dash columns equals two, and then I'll try dash dash columns one. So that didn't do anything. So now I'm going to do dash dash columns equals one. And again, that's a um, that's a that's an A2PS option. So I'll do ocular sample PS again. Now now this time it says um, that it it total four pages on four sheets. So it definitely has extended the page count because now I'm only printing one column per per page and it still has problems honestly like the uh, the long line is still it, it goes right off the page but at least it doesn't print over a second column so that's interesting that that is a problem and it's I, I imagine it's a problem because FFmpeg to be fair has some pretty surprisingly dynamic output so stuff that that nothing can predict. I mean, it, it, it in its dash help, it, it gives you information about how it was compiled, what options were compiled into it. And I, I believe that that's dynamically generated. So I, I don't know how that's, you know, whether that's throwing off card or not. Um, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting problem to have. And I guess with more, more testing, I could probably figure out some option to make that work, maybe. For instance, in A2PS, there's there are settings presets for dash one, or, or the, the the option is dash one, dash two, dash three, and so on, to to generate presets for how many columns there actually are on each page. So possibly potentially setting it to dash three, even though the columns is set to two, might help. There's also a dash dash font dash size, which would enable me to control that more. There's the dash L, uh, which I don't remember. It's a dash capital L specifically. Lines per page. Uh, that would control uh, how many lines it tries to print per virtual sort of frame. 
and so on. Oh, and there's characters per line, uh, dash dash cars, dash per dash line, which is dash ca uh, lowercase l, scale the font to, to print some number of columns per per virtual. It calls the, the little frame in a, in a printable page a, a virtual. So a couple of different, and there's margins that you can control and, and stuff like that. So there, there are different ways to, to control the output. For, for my purposes, uh, this is a lot more than I'd realized I was signing up for in terms of um, a quick demonstration. So I'm just going to do, I'm going to skip over FFmpeg. I'm just going to do card dash dash output equals sample.ps again. And we'll do tack. That's a fun one, right? Nothing could possibly go wrong with with that. So ocular sample.ps. And there's a nice handy little reference card for the tack command. Again, it's just the output of basically tack dash dash help, but in a postscript format. Okay, that's enough about card. And I do believe, judging by my own thirst, it's time for a coffee break. <laughs> I've got a cup of coffee here that I've made in my brand new coffee stovetop percolator. So it has no power of its own. It is essentially a tin kettle. Maybe not tin, I don't know. Aluminum? I don't know what they're made out of. It's a kettle. And in the kettle, there's a little stand. This is what a percolator is, so if you know, then this will all sound very familiar to you. There's a little stand. It's a metal stand. And the stand has a little notch about three quarters of the way up such that you can set this little metal basket on the stand uh, and it won't slide down the whole stand so it, it stops about a quarter of the way down. You fill this basket with coffee grounds and then you start your percolator. You, you put it on your oven, on your stove rather, turn the stove on and wait about 11 minutes I've found for my particular stove because it takes it a while uh, to heat a kettle up. It takes about eight minutes to heat the kettle up and then you let the thing percolate for about two, three minutes, depending on the strength of the coffee, like the, the grind itself, the roast. And, and then you take it off the heat, pour yourself a cup of coffee, and it's amazing. It's a very distinctive kind of flavor, and a lot of people I, I've heard consider percolators one of the one of the, the, the crimes against coffee drinking, because essentially what's happening, it, it's like one of those Italian espresso makers. You know, you've seen the the um the carafes the silver carafes that you put on your stove and you put you pack the coffee into the little the, the middle part and it forces you as it boils it forces water and steam through the coffee up to the top portion of it where it comes to rest and you've got this great tasting espresso percolators like that except instead of steaming through the the coffee grounds it's it's boiling water, and then the water is hitting the roof of the percolator. That's what's causing this percolator sound, or it's part of what's causing it. And the water drips back, falls back down into this basket of grounds and sort of seeps through the grounds, extracting coffee, and then back into the kettle. So now you're, you're boiling the water, which is slowly also turning into coffee, and then going back up at, to the top of the percolator and falling back down. So it's this weird sort of boil, boiling-driven fountain, which ends up being coffee after a couple of iterations. And people consider this pretty 
pretty poor practice because you're you're extracting coffee with coffee sort of you know and it's it's not very precise and there's a lot of sort of running through the coffee more than once it's not an efficient and and clean way of extracting coffee from the the, the ground beans I love it. This is the kind of coffee, honestly, that I grew up with. I remember the sounds and smells of percolators early in the morning when my parents would be drinking their morning cup. And uh, it's just, it's a great, great distinct flavor that I just, I'm really enjoying. And, and it's great because it's not no power. Uh, you, you take this percolator to the campgrounds and make yourself a percolated cup of coffee over a campfire. Not a problem. And I, I really, really love technology that um, that just kind of works on basic principles of energy and physics and stuff. And so that's that's it's it's good. I'm really enjoying it. One of the other to make this matter much much worse, the percolator doesn't really perform that well without a good I'd say 24 ounces of water in it in the in the percolator in the kettle. I guess just because of its size. Um so I essentially have to make my my coffee mug holds about 12 to 16 ounces of coffee. So I basically make two cups of coffee, two two iterations of coffee for myself. But by the time I finish my first cup, of course, the, the coffee has gotten cold in the percolator. And so I have to reheat the coffee in order to have my second cup of coffee, which honestly I never thought I would do for anything. I hate re- reheated coffee. But this has been such a fun, fun throwback to percolated coffee that I've just been reheating the coffee. And frankly, it's great. Uh, it takes me back... Uh, more to the diners of the U.S., the US where you know, you've know you got the coffee pot just sitting on a burner for hours at a time. This is kind of like that, except a little bit less severe because it's not sitting. I just I heat it for about six or eight minutes and then dump it into my cup and drink it. That is what I'm enjoying right now. Hopefully you have something similarly pleasant for yourself. And I, I do say for yourself because not everyone likes percolator coffee. But if you do, or if you're curious, check it out. That these, these powerless percolators are pretty neat. Okay, so next uh, software in this package, in this uh, installable package, A2PS, is Compose Glyphs. And this one's going to be really fast because I really don't know a whole lot about it. I, I don't typically get this deep into printing technology on a daily basis. So I, I'm, I'm not too clear on what use case certainly I would have or anyone would have for this. Not to say that I doubt its usefulness. I'm just saying I don't actually know what that would be. So it's Compose Glyphs. That's Compose and then G-L-Y-P-H-S. And it is, uh, there's there's no man page. You, you can do a Compose Glyphs dash dash help and it tells you that you can define an input file uh, as an, it, it needs to be an AFM file, which is Adobe Font Metrics. Now, Adobe Font Metrics is a format created by Adobe, as you can imagine, uh, for PostScript, and it defines font metrics, as the name implies, which would be things like kerning and leading and letter space and so on. It, it really is, it's just a definition file, so without without the font that it's talking about, it doesn't do a whole lot of good for anybody. It can create, uh, according to the Debian man page, I think is where I saw this, um, nope, sorry, it was Linux from scratch. Dot org, uh, it creates a composite font program. 
Now, again, I, that doesn't really say anything to me personally because I, I don't sit around creating fonts myself. I don't have to deal with whether a font is compatible with PostScript or not and so on. So I, I'm, I'm not too sure exactly what this is. Stack Exchange says that if you have uh, a .pfa or a .pfb file, you can open those in FontForge, and then if you've got the AFM, you can marry the AFM data with that font that you've opened up in FontForge, so that all that metadata about, well, where should that letter fall is now embedded into the font. So anyway, if you need that kind of functionality, if you need conversion of, of font metrics, now you know where to find it, right? Compose glyphs. Okay, on to EPSF fit. This is a weird one. It kind of threw me off for a while because EPSF is not what I call the file that it deals with. So in other words, it call, it says EPSF. I've never heard that term before. I only know it as EPS. So I had to go on a big search for what an EPSF is. Turns out, I, I believe there's no such thing. It is EPS, and and I guess they just extended it to be EPSF because of reasons. I, I don't know what that reason would be. Maybe it's something to do with this, the file spec or something like that. I'm not sure. But anyway, this is EPSF fit, which really, to me, would be called EPS fit because I, I don't know what that F stands for. So EPS, um, the EPS format is encapsulated PostScript. That is that is a file format and a yeah a file format defined by I think Adobe. It is it is PostScript encapsulated. What's it encapsulated in? I honestly don't know. I never bothered to look. All I do know is that EPS is a little bit like a PostScript file or a little bit like an SVG functionally. You can open it up in Inkscape or LibreOffice Draw and modify it to some degree. Now it's it's pretty raw vector data. It doesn't have awareness of separate objects and so on like an SVG would, but it is handy if you ever need to modify paths. EPS is also really good as an interchange format. I mean, there is, I think, technically actually something called EPS interchange, which I think is its own thing, but I'm just saying if you have someone that you're working with who's not using free and open source software and you need to send them a vector file or vice versa, you need to get a vector file from someone, EPS is a really great format to request because it, it, you know, some people will try to send you Adobe Illustrator files and so on, and that gets annoying because, yes, you can kind of import them sometimes as long as everything's neat and well-defined, but generally it's it's even better if you can just get the EPS uh, sometimes because that way you know everything is where it thinks it should be. I mean, you may as well, I guess, just get a PDF at that point, but I, I find that EPS typically is a little bit friendlier than than certainly Adobe Illustrator file and and sometimes a, a bit a bit cleaner than a PDF. So, there you go, EPS. So, EPS fit just resizes an EPS, which I guess is pretty handy. I mean, it is something that you could do with other applications, but this this is a quick and easy way to do it through the terminal. And you might think, well, I could just do this with ImageMagick as well. And technically, yes, you could, but ImageMagick itself doesn't even recommend that you do uh, that you manipulate vectors with with ImageMagick. ImageMagick is a uh, rasterized centric application. It, it knows about bitmaps. It doesn't actually know that much about paths. So if you want to keep your file truly vector based, then then this would be a great way to do that. So the 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 basics of it is EPSF fit, and then the um, lower left. X lower left Y and then the upper 
write x and the upper write y, and then the input and output file. So for instance, if I want to do uh, EPSF fit, uh, I'll do a dash C to center the image in the given bounding box. I will do a dash, uh, let's do dash A to adjust the aspect ratio to fit the bounding box. That is not something that I would normally do, but I'm going to do it right now just for kicks. Uh, and then I will do, let's see, a zero for my lower left X. So that's that goes in right at the, the beginning of the page. And a uh, 20, well, maybe I'll do a 33 for the lower left Y. Yeah, lower left Y, 33. Sounds good. Uh, and then the upper right X, let's make it extend all the way to, I don't know, 45 uh, postscript points or units, whatever, points. And then the upper right Y, since it's upper right, uh, I'll make it a zero. And then we'll do the input file here. I'll do the sample.eps that I've got lying around, and I'll output it to um, blah.eps. Okay, that's done. Now if I look at blah.eps in Ocular, it looks like in the bottom left corner of my page, I have my little EPS graphic that I had made. Cool. Uh, it's a little bit squashed because I did the dash A, the aspect ratio thing, to... Um, to, to adjust it for the bounding box. So now I'm going to take the dash A out, and I'm going to do the dash M, which rotates the image to maximize the size if it would fit better in the bounding box. Let's see what happens there. And yeah, again, it kind of looks lower, lower corner of the page. I've got this, uh, this graphic, and it's rotated slightly because it detected that it would fit the bounding box better if it rotated it. It looks like it was 90 degrees anti-clockwise. And so on. I mean, you can do this all day. This is, um, that's all it does. It resizes it somewhere onto a page. It, it is a little bit strange because the units that you are using is postscript points. And so if you don't think in points when you're thinking of pages, you'll have to kind of, you might have to play around a little bit to kind of figure out where things go. But that's, that's basically what it does. And it does it well, it, it seems. And, and it outputs to EPS again, so, you know, there's no format loss here. It's it's you're you're ingesting an EPS, resizing it, and outputting it back as an EPS. So you could open that graphic back up in Inkscape or something, and do whatever you need to do uh, to it. Okay, a couple more here. Extract res. Extract res is uh, extracting resources from a PostScript document. So it, it it extracts things like fonts. If you've if you've got an embedded font, um, proc sets. Don't know what that is. Patterns, files, and so on appearing in a PostScript document and puts appropriate um, percent percent include resource comments in the document prolog. The reason that you might want to do this is that it is in cases where you are manipulating PostScript files and you need the resources to appear in one um, one central location for the whole for all of your documents. Again, I've never actually had to do this myself. I suspect that I've used applications that use either this or this kind of functionality, but I've never done it personally. Or I should say, I've never had the need for it personally. I've I've done it 
um, in prep for this show. So um, extract res, you can just run it against a, a PostScript file. So I have the sample.ps that I generated before. I think it's got the output of the tack command right now. So extract res sample.ps, and I'm going to pipe it to less. And if you do that on a PostScript file, and again, if you don't have a PostScript file lying around, you know you now know how to create one. Uh, you get to kind of see the notation of of the PostScript language, the the beauty that PostScript is. So, for instance, I've got um, percent exclamation ps dash adobe dash three percent percent title colon card percent percent four colon blank percent percent creator colon a two ps version four dot one four and so on. So it's got all this kind of metadata that the PostScript um, the script postscript document is going to is going to utilize and and it's also got the data itself so the the title is card and then if i if i look at sample.ps i see that at the top of ocular the title is actually card that's the name of this document you may have seen a pdf in the past um, that has something like uh, i don't know you know microsoft word PDF export or something like you know completely not that the title of the document isn't the the contents it's some kind of auto filled form I see that on some very professional PDFs sometimes um, or you know PDFs from professional places and they just have the auto generated sort of title of the document so if you're looking in a task a task manager for, for that for an open document somewhere you know you don't see the the thing it doesn't say help help reference for for tack it says card so that's the title that's why this postscript document is is titled card because it's it's here in the postscript data uh, you also get other stuff like uh, the bounding box for that element whatever that element is 24 24 588 768 that's the bounding box document date clean 7 bit orientation landscape so on and so on so you've got you've got all kinds of data there, and what what this extract res does for you is potentially extracts that data and cleans it up a little bit, so that if you have to concatenate a bunch of PostScript documents together or something, then you can do that sort of intelligently. Um, that's about everything I know about that one because honestly, I don't know. Uh, you know, I've never used this application before, and I don't know when I would need to. And once again, I imagine. I completely imagine that um, that I've used an application that uses that that function or or maybe even that command. Who knows? Uh, but I just I don't know. I've never sat down and run extract res myself. Okay, next up is is a quick one because I can't I can't use it. I can't prove that it works or doesn't work. Uh, it it is fix dls rps. That's f fix dls rps. It's a it's a filter to fix uh, some PostScript. Uh, specifically, it fixes quote unquote fixes. That's what it like the man page literally uses quotes around the word fixes. PostScript generated from the DVI laser slash PS drive driver so that it works correctly with Angus Duggan's PS utils package. So I I don't have anything that uses the DVI laser slash PS driver as far as I know. I don't know how I would get that, and I'm not really all that interested in 
in finding out. So, I mean, especially if it apparently needs to be fixed. I, I don't I don't see why I would pursue that. Next up is Fix FMPS. And this one, I don't actually remember what this one does. Oh yeah, it filters. It's a filter to fix frame maker documents so that PSUtils works with with that postscript. So FrameMaker is a, I don't know if, I mean, I've never used it, but I do know that FrameMaker is, was, maybe still is, a, um, a desktop layout program that did at one point at least work on Sun Microsystems um, boxes. So I, I don't know if FrameMaker is still around. I don't know if it's something that people still use. All I know is that there's a utility to fix stuff. Oh, okay. It's a, apparently it's an Adobe Adobe FrameMaker is a document processor designed for writing and editing large and complex documents. So there you go. So I I definitely don't have a way to verify the the efficiency or or validity of Fix FMPS because I don't have FrameMaker. I won't be using FrameMaker. Uh, you couldn't pay me to use FrameMaker. So there you go. Uh, fix FMPS. If you are using FrameMaker, you should check out Scribus. That's all I'll say about that one. Um, fix MacPS. Let me guess what this one does. It filters to fix Macintosh documents with a saner version of MD. Uh, it says that Fix MacPS is a Perl filter which fixes PostScript generated from a Macintosh PC such that it works correctly with Angus Duggan's PSUtils packages. Um, and I, I don't have I don't have access to anything like that as well uh, either, so I can't I can't prove that. But you get the idea. There are these fix utilities. So there's um, fix NT, which fixes documents created by Windows NT. There's fix PS, which just I guess let's see what that does. Uh, it fixes common PostScript problems that that can break post processing. And again, I, I don't. You know, I would have to generate something that doesn't that, that has a problem, and I, I don't really know how to do that. So uh, we'll skip over that, and we'll skip over a lot of these. So there's a bunch of fix. There's um, fix psditps. There's fix pspps, scribeps, tpps, wfwps, wpps, wwps, and that's it. So if there are filters that are required to get PostScript sort of back into spec, it may ship with A2PS if you look hard enough for it. So the next one is going to be um, Git AFM. Now we've already talked about AFM a little bit with the uh, compose glyph command. Git AFM creates an AFM file for a PostScript font. Again, the use case here is probably pretty specialized, pretty niche. I could imagine, for instance, if you were, I mean, this is kind of suggested out of the man page itself, if you were re-implementing the, the font Times Roman, that's not an open font, but it's a common font. So if someone sends you a document with Times Ro that depends on Time Roman, you might want an open source alternative to Times Roman so that you can open that file and, and view it without any kind of weird weird um, font issues or reordering of, of or, or re-spacing of, of characters and so on. So if you were you're, you're redoing your own Times font version and you want to know the exact metrics of the actual Times Roman, get AFM is a way to extract that data from a copy of Times Roman that you legally own because you've paid some 
company somewhere to license that font for redistribution with their operating system. And, and and actually, I mean, to be honest, I'm pretty sure you can legally download them from Microsoft anyway, last time I checked. Um, and so you could get the, the metrics from those files with Git AFM. So it's a little bit of a reverse engineering application. So now we're going to do include res, and that's kind of the opposite of extract res, or res, resources. This includes resources like fonts and patterns and files in place of percent percent include resource comments in a PostScript document. The example that they give is extract res file.ps and then pipe that to include res and then uh, redirect the output to output.ps. That would move all the resources appearing in file.ps to your, your output.ps file. So that's nice to know about, I guess. And I think that's it for this episode. I, I, I kind of wanted to get through this whole package today. But at the same time, I don't want to be unfair to some of these these commands, and there are some good ones coming up. So we're going to call it done for now, and we'll resume A2PS in the next episode, which will be episode 335, because we're using numbers now, not seasons. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time. listening to the GNU World Order AugCast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AugCast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Magician has a master. God rest his soul if he still has one.